Lucifer Podcast is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. For all things comics, movies, media, music, and more, check out the Cage Club Network. That's cageclub.me. this week did a deep dive into the major moments that have built the franchise over the years. Whether it was Hickman's work on X-Men 7, taking the events of House of M, as well as many other facets of X-Men, and spinning them on their head, or Giant Size X-Men's beautiful tribute to Grant Morrison's heyday in New X-Men, or, I mean, X-Men Fantastic Four taking, like, a one-sentence idea and stretching it out for 32 pages. This week was a lot about the past, and yet still somehow looking forward. Here to talk about it as always is the social council of krakoa i'm nico i'm dylan i'm kyle i'm regina and i'm jonah and we hope you survive the experience similar to those wacky kids who ended up on doom island hey that's that's the one that's okay okay because i mean you could have said unlike melody guthrie but i guess that's the less touchy one <laughs> this has been a weird week for the news dylan i think you've got some stuff that came out of c2e2 I do. There were some really crazy images for a summer event that we're getting. Announced this past week at C2E2, the X-Men franchise will be having a 15-part crossover that is going to be called X of Swords, or maybe Ten of Swords. Not 100%. Cross of Swords. (laughs) The Crossing of Swords. Because, you know, boys love to cross swords. (laughs) Logan and Scott do now. (laughs) Oh my. The description of the storyline is, in this sprawling saga, the new mutant nation of Krakoa faces their biggest challenge yet, threatened by powerful forces from the unknown. Ten mutants will rise up to defend their home, arming themselves with legendary blades, both new and familiar ones from Marvel history. Mutant kind will finally meet its mystical destiny. This storyline will impact all of the X-Men franchise. It is a story that Hickman has said X-Men fans dare not miss. Well, I mean, when you say it's going to run through every fucking book, you would have to work hard to miss it, Mr. Hickman. This isn't one of those things where you're like, this is real under the radar. We're just kind of like, we're just kind of like doing it. It's not a big deal. No, he's like, this will be in every title. This will change everything. You liked Dawn of X? You liked House of X? Fuck it all. Now it's the sword book. Everybody get a sword. (laughs) You like swords. I don't understand how Shatterstar is not in this image that came out from Mark Brooks. I'm very sad about that. Yeah, that's weird. Like, literally every other X-Man who has ever had a sword is in this image. And then there's ones that have never had swords, including Cyclops, with his lightsaber. It's not fair. Yeah, I don't understand that thing. I was looking at it for like five minutes and I was like, is that one of his optic blasts as a sword? Because don't get me wrong, I don't hate it, but I do find myself a little like... I like the whole we're pulling swords from all over Marvel history. I think it looks like Rachel has Corvus's Phoenix Blade. It looks like Nightcrawler has a more classic rapier in his hand. Logan has so many fucking magical swords, it's kind of hard to limit down. Cable should have a scimitar, not a sword, but it's fine. It's fine. The thing I can't handle is Xavier Flash dancing in with his (laughs) sword, and what a feeling it is. However, anthema to a lot of things we have thought, my one and only, my true love is actually right behind his sister's doppel self, I guess. And that sure does look like my precious Brian rocking a Lionheart sword on the cover of this crossover. And I am pretty excited. Although, guys, one more time. Guys, why does Hisako have an armor sword? Leave Hisako alone. She can do whatever she wants forever. I adore Hisako. But if I'm like, Hisako or Shatterstar, which one already had a sword that I was super into? I'm like, Well, well, true, but we could also, you know, say that Storm and her lightsaber, she's never had in comics either. And guys, wait one second. Does everybody see, like, Holy Warrior of Light Warren up there in the corner? Because, like, that's a lot. Like, that's a lot of look. Like, to be, like, really, like, brazenly honest with you. I kind of wonder if that is Warren or that new kid that's going to 
to be in Children of the Atom, because every image of that guy that looks like Archangel from those books has a weird helmet on, and it kind of looks like this image. Oh. I would really prefer that, 1,000%. Especially since these wings don't look like they're actual wings that we've seen on Warren before. In the upper left-hand corner, there's a character that I think is supposed to look like Gorgon, but I'm half convinced that it's like a skinny French twink version of Gorgon. (laughs) So he's a little bit less threatening because I feel like at any moment he's going to go searching for his poppers. Why is it? And I feel like I'm not scared of him. Why why is French a description of this (laughs) tiny man? I think it's something about the way his clothes lay on him. It's very couture. It's very it's very high fashion. And nobody's mentioning that Doug is carrying a sword as well. I mean, that's terrifying. Yeah, I I am <laughs> honestly terrified of Doug carrying a sword. And it seems to be attached by a cable to his arm. Oh my god, what if his sword is Warlock? Oh, oh my god. Swordlock! Swordlock. Ah! <laughs> give me Swordlock or give me nothing. And what happened to the the soul sword? It looks so tiny. Kyle, size doesn't matter. <laughs> it's not the size of the sword, it's the size of the soul swinging it to your death. Mm-hmm. And I think with magic, the thing to remember is you're going to die no matter the size of the sword. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> oh wait, I know what Cable's sword looks like. It looks like Cloud's buster sword. Oh, yep, I see it. So does Rachel's. That's true. It's just like buster blades all it over the is. place. <laughs> And I love that uh, I love that Apocalypse has a sword that I can only describe as looks like it would be part of his personal font. <laughs> Jonah, I think this is your first like runs through titles X crossover. That is correct because I have not read much else, and I'm not at the point in the past where there are 15 billion X Men books running around. No, but I mean, hey, at least your first crossover is going to focus on an idea that really befits your guy. Nightcrawler, magic, swords. This is all very, you know, the Crimson Pirates. Claremont must be like a combination of so happy and so mad that Marvel is doing some sort of magical swords thing and he's not helming it. If I was in his position, I would be as well. But I am very excited for this because, you know, who doesn't love a good sword? And the easiest way to make a character seem, seem, and that's the key word, more badass, is just add a sword to them. Add multiple swords. Like Kurt, give him three. Give him five. Pull a Zoro and just have a thousand blades, but it actually is just three. And you just carry one in the mouth. That's an anime reference for all you anime fans out there. <laughs> Guys, I think I figured out how this arc is going to end. Forearm and Spiral are going to come in, and they're going to take all ten swords. <laughs> there is more news, and I'm going to throw it back to you, Nico. You know, I actually was so happy when I saw this. I didn't realize that this was out there, and now that he's back, I guess I should be used to the idea of Logan popping up everywhere on Earth. And one of those places on Marvel Earth that he loves to pop up is the world of Madripoor. Black Cat number 9 by Jed McKay and Chris Anka, you know, big friend of X-Men Chris Anka, who drew for the books for like five or six years. It actually sees the return of Patch, my favorite Logan persona, where he returns to Madripoor just in time to find none other than then Cade Kilgore. He's 12, he's Hellfire, and he's in more books than I think makes Dylan happy. Yeah, like why is this annoying Hellfire brat getting more airtime than all of my X-Men favorites so far? He has now been in like five issues since Dawn of X started. He is, for those keeping track, out appearing Warpath, Monet, Dazzler, Shatterstar. Like, I enjoy him as an element of Jason Aaron's Wolverine and the X-Men, but right now we have so many villains running around, whether it's the horticulturists or it's the people that are skinning Domino, which, ew, still ew. Just, that's still ew. Why? No. And so I find myself kind of annoyed. I can think of like a thousand other villains I'd like to see as much. So... For certain, I'm pretty left empty by this reveal that the Hellfire Club is appearing in Spider titles now. Spider-Man himself is no stranger to some X-Men crossovers, most notably the weird gods who were just sent into the sun and then never seen again and no explanation for anything really whatsoever. 
For those of you looking to know what Jonah's talking about, check out Marvel Team-Up Annual Number 1 in our archives, where we discuss that arc, where the X-Men help some interdimensional terrorists ascend to godhood, and then they just sort of pat them off and send them on their way. Spider-Man, you know, hangs out with the X-Men every every so often, and I don't mind using X-Men characters in Spider-Man, you know, titles, but there's so much going on in the X-Titles already, and I don't want to be like, well, Marvel, you should be barred for a little bit to, you know, resolve their own stories and not really appear anywhere else. But I'm also kind of of that opinion because there's already so much going on. Wolverine especially is already in Savage Avengers, and does he really need to appear somewhere else right now? I mean, why isn't he at home looking at Gina in a bikini and Scott in a Speedo? Hey everybody, this is Chandler with X Reads the Podcast. I want to say my favorite Dawn of X series is Marauders because I love Kitty, I'm sorry, Kate Pride. I love a super queer Bobby and I enjoy Storm on every panel I ever see her in. So that's my favorite. This week, we are looking at X-Men number seven, which was titled Life Death. Jonathan Hickman is our writer. Lionel Yu is the artist. Sonny Go is the colorist. And VC's Clayton Cowles is our letterer. You know, this issue has clearly had a very strong reaction on the internet. And there were a lot of different elements that came together to create the intensity of the response. And while we love discussing every aspect of the X franchise, for many people, including many listeners and many readers, faith is a particularly emotional topic. This X-Men featured Nightcrawler deciding that it's on him to found a new mutant faith in light of everything that's happened to the X-Men in the last year. Those words have really stimulated a discussion among all of fandom, ourselves included. And while we plan on discussing the rest of the issues in our normal capacity, with deference to those who feel very strongly about their faith, it's important that we handle this topic with the elegance and feeling of safety that it requires. So we're going to give everybody a chance to talk about their feelings for a few moments on this topic before we talk about anything else. It is no secret that I am the resident Nightcrawler boy of this podcast crew. And I had a very interesting interpretation of Kurt's newfound questioning. And I liken this to Chidi Anagonye on the show The Good Place. The character of Chidi Anagonye is a character who is an ethics professor. He teaches moral philosophy and he's trying to find the ultimate answers to ethics. The way I interpreted Kurt is that he's not renouncing Christianity. He's saying he's come upon a new subset of questions about morality in relation to mutantum. The traditional teachings of Christianity, Buddhism, and any other non-mutant religion don't have these answers that he's looking for. He realizes that he has to be the one to create those answers. And that's it's also part of why I liken it to Chidi, because throughout this show, The Good Place, Chidi talks about different ethic philosophers that how would they react to a situation? And that's the way I interpret it. There's no right answer to these questions that Kurt has. There's no wrong or right reasoning for anything. But Kurt needs answers. And what is religion but an organization that provides you comfort and answers to the things that are the unknown? Kurt's not that special. Let's be real. He's not the only one who's going to be having these questions. But if he can provide a basis for how do we solve these questions for other mutants to give them comfort, I think that's a good thing. I had some struggle with this topic when I read it and the more I thought about it and the more I thought about why I was having issues with it was I realized that what Kurt is going through in this issue is similar to my own experience growing up in the Catholic Church. Up until the point where I was in high school, I was pretty into my church. And at some point, I don't know what happened, but I realized that I was no longer getting what I needed from that experience. And it really made me question my own connection to it. And I ended up leaving my church. And 
and I I feel that kind of same connection the way that Kurt does. I have been looking for something that replaces what I used to get from them. I haven't found that. Kurt on the other hand, has realized that he needs to take the lessons that give him what he needs from his Catholic upbringing and transform them into a experience that fits in this new mutant world. For me, the issue and Nightcrawler's stance is a little bit bothersome. I... It's hard to explain. I don't take it personally bothersome. I am not a religious person. But my thoughts on this are, to me, even though, just like Jonah said, I can understand aspects of this not being Nightcrawler denouncing his faith or any kind of faith, to me, I feel like Nightcrawler is a symbol for a very large amount of people that could be comic book fans. And that is, yes, Catholic and Christian comic book fans. I know faith is something that people choose, but people who are very strong in their faith, especially Catholics and Christians, it is a part of their life and it may feel like it wasn't a choice and like not in a bad way. And I know I'm probably wording this very weirdly, but I feel like Nightcrawler is a symbol, like I said, to those types of fans and to take this one character. When it comes to X-Men characters, there is hardly any mutants that talk about their faith as much as Nightcrawler does. There's a handful of other ones. There's Wolfsbane, there's Dust, there's my favorite Monet, who's really technically kind of only ever mentioned her face, Faith like five times. I feel like this is taking someone away from those fans, and that is why I am slightly upset. It doesn't bother me at all that he's creating his own religion, because again, I'm not super religious. I am just someone who tends to care a lot about smaller amounts of fans, even though I know religious fans is probably not a small group, but I'm sure you all understand what I'm saying. That's why I have an issue with this particular subject with Nightcrawler. Okay, so I have a lot of feelings. <laughs> I think that this particular instance raises a lot of really good questions. I rated this book really highly because in some ways it did kind of hurt my feelings personally that Kurt is kind of changing his thoughts because he's always seemed so secure in being Catholic. He's never, he's always found peace being Catholic. And this book, the drop date was changed to coincide with Ash Wednesday. And I feel like that was done on purpose and with intent. I believe that most people at some point, if they are a thinking rational person, they will at some point start questioning what they believe in their religion. There are people who don't have religion and that's perfectly fine. There are people who are zealots and that's obviously not okay because they do take things to extremes, which we see in these books. But I never imagined that I would see Nightcrawler get to a point where he watches something like Crucible. And that's the other thing. I think that within this book, we're conflating two things that are not really the same thing. They're separate, but they're introduced in the same book. So they are conflated by necessity. But I just never imagined I would see a day where Kurt observes someone basically committing suicide by cop and just stand there and watch it. And he even says it in the text, you know, are we really going to do this? I think that this book has brought a lot of interesting questions. He himself says, you know, I'm thinking about the soul. I don't know if anybody else is thinking it, but I'm thinking it. And Scott says, well, if this is wrong, I don't want to be right. And to me, that's that says something. Now, Jonathan Hickman has written books involving faith and Catholicism in particular before. So I assume that he is familiar with it. There is a part of the text where they say something about trying to get to heaven. And I think that's a misunderstanding of what Catholicism means because you don't get to heaven by doing good work per what the church teaches. However, I did think that this is bringing forth some really good questions. I reacted in a much stronger way. Somebody had already told me something's going to happen with Nightcrawler and you're not going to like it because they didn't like it. And I thought, well, I'm pretty good. Again, as long as you tell me a good story, I'm pretty good rolling with changes. But 
I was surprised at how heartbroken I was when I read some of the things that Nightcrawler was talking about and mentioning. We all come from a different place and everybody's perspective is going to be different. I hope that I see something really wonderful coming from Nightcrawler. I do hope that when he considers what he has always known and then he's creating this new ideal for mutants, I do hope it is something wonderful. There was a lot of things that happened in this book that were not wonderful and were scary to a specific point. But I do hope that at some point they address what it means for him in reference to being Catholic and now creating his own church, which under Catholic law is kind of like being a heretic. (laughs) Because I do think that even though a lot of characters may be construed as Christian, they're not really vocal about it. You know, they... They might celebrate Christmas, but I know a lot of people who aren't Christians that celebrate Christmas. But it's just been such a huge part of Kurt's character that to see this changing, which everything is going to change, it's just a little bit heartbreaking for someone. I've always seen so stalwart in his faith, but I do hope to see good things from Kurt. I know that his compassion is one of his greatest strengths. Kurt's love for his fellow man, I don't think those things are individual to his faith. They're just something that supplements it. So I I really hope that we just continue to see something wonderful and beautiful coming from him, regardless of what it means for his faith, and that he continues to acknowledge where he's coming from theologically. I have long divorced the idea of organized groups that represent religion from the value of the religious text because organized religion in its current form does not reflect the works, the teachings, or the values of the books in question. And so I never saw this as the Catholic Church losing Nightcrawler. I saw it as the faithful keeping their brother. When I looked through the pages of X-Men, I actually can't stop finding places where Kurt questions his faith. He regularly says, I don't know how I'm supposed to keep believing in God after all the things I've seen. He actually says it a lot throughout his tenure. And then he met his father, a version of the devil. And then he was in heaven, where it was very clear that it was a representation of heaven that was designed to his ability to interpret it. For me, scripture and religion are ways that people can deal with the pain of the world around them. I don't even think I read the words, Nightcrawler no longer believes in Jesus. But I think he's trying to find a way to reconcile that if the idea of death in the Catholic faith is that you receive into the kingdom of heaven and become one with the Holy Spirit and its three-faced God form, that is something that X-Men can currently not achieve. Nightcrawler, by virtue of an endless cycle of reincarnation, which is inherently against the Catholic faith, he's, by virtue of being a mutant, not welcome in the Catholic faith right now. He's just trying to make sense of a painful world around him where no version of who he is is allowed to sit on the same shelf as another version of who he is. As someone who left organized religion a long time ago in favor of spiritual that allowed me to handle the complexities of an ever-changing world that seemed set to tell me that I could never be as complex as it is, but rather would always have to abide by its rules. I felt something I pretty much never felt before from comics. I felt like it was okay to question my faith in a way that doesn't make me a villain. Shoshana from the House of X group on Facebook. And my favorite book at the moment is X-Force. Why? Because Jean Grey gets to live up to something she said back in an old uncanny issue. Jean said, I'm just Jean Grey, one of the most powerful size on the planet. She's doing that right now in that series. Hell, she's doing it in giant size X-Men number one, Jean Grey and Emma Frost. In the past, a lot of writers didn't like showing her that way. Thank you, Tom Taylor, for doing that in X-Men Red. But in X-Force right now, and in the giant size, Jean's truly showing her strength and power. And it's magnificent and marvelous to watch. Going back to that quote, Jean said that the frightening thing is, in my dreams, I'm not afraid to lose myself in my mutant ability. I cut loose completely. Safe to say that's exactly what she's doing in this Dawn of X title. That is what I truly love about her in this series because she is cutting loose. Finally, we get to see her true potential without the Phoenix, without anyone holding her back. I kind of see Hickman putting her back in her Marvel Girl outfit as a as some way the way uh, she was reset in the Phoenix Dark Phoenix saga at the end of it all. Well, she definitely showed that she's come a long way, baby, from that moment. So 
So guys, it's so hard to pick with what we want to start with that's not like sad bummer, because everything is sad bummer. But like we have like gayish Logan and Scott. We have apocalypse murdering children as a blood sport in front of people in the weirdest interpretation of that scene from Black Panther ever. We have Douglock scaring the shit out of me. There is so much in this. I cannot. I, I, who? Who's going to go first? Who? I thought Nico and Dylan were kind of joking that they were a crap ton of Guthrie kids that were mutants and they were like a crap ton of them and then this issue happened and I was like oh that's a lot of them because I was like well who's Paige and I looked it up and then I was like I noticed the number of siblings and I was like are you kidding me and then that's actually what killed Papa Guthrie Mama Guthrie fucked him to death death by snoo snoo <laughs> oh my god then, wow. let's, let's not destroy Mama Guthrie that way. Her kids might be all messed up and stuff, but she's like the only sane one. Let's not, no, no. (laughs) He died of the sex law. Leave her alone. And then I looked up Joshua because he's in this book, but doesn't get to say anything because he's not important enough. But then I realized he's the better mutant love child of Banshee and Angel where he gets feathery wings, but he also gets a shit ton of other powers that just make him way more better than both of them combined and all page got was flight by radiation it was weird you mean um, melody melody yeah. yeah melody page can rip off her skin yeah and sometimes turn into a bird i uh <laughs> i misconstrued the names because there's so many goddamn it there's too many of them please there's a plethora of guthries so if I may ask my two Guthrie fans, as well as the other two who may or may not be Guthrie fans, did you enjoy Melody fighting for her right to get her powers back or? I actually really did. I really, really did. I thought the interpretation of the Scarlet Witch as a pretender, because currently she's not actually a mutant and she's not actually the child of Magneto. And it's currently that it's this other high evolutionary magic thing. And they've changed her backstory so that they could keep using her in Avengers movies and not worry about the Fox franchise and if they've gotten themselves into this weird fucking hole they should have to dig themselves out and this idea that that Scarlet Witch is like the pretender ah I loved it children screaming kill Wanda something's never changed my poor Wanda but it was fucking great I thought like I mean it was disturbing but it was purposefully disturbing it was an idea that was meant to clash with the other contents I agree with Nico I completely loved it I might have certain thoughts on the other part of the book but I actually really enjoyed the crucible and I loved seeing this part with Melody I kind of probably would have enjoyed the crucible even more if maybe it was like a handful of kids at the same time fighting apocalypse like especially melody's brother who is all of a sudden alive again why why couldn't we have seen his crucible time as well but yeah i enjoyed it i found it incredibly unsettling like regina said the fact that this is effectively suicide by cop it's in order to restore your powers it's it's oh oh, i i I don't know if I like where this is taking the mutant community. It's a very brutal direction, I think. But at the same time, it's allowed... I guess it's... uh, At the same time, it kind of makes it so that it seems like these people are allowed to die with honor? I guess? I don't know. I don't know. Well, obviously I found it unsettling as well. (laughs) I understand the need for ritual. I think ritual is extremely important when you're trying to create something new and culturally relevant when you are birthing basically a new nation. There has to be a method for these mutants to get their powers back, but it was horrifying. And I mean, it was purposefully horrifying. So I I get it's a masterful piece of storytelling. I'll just say that from the get-go, but there has got to be a different way that this can be achieved. You 
can't tell me between Sinister and Apocalypse and the scientists that they have in Sage that you can't figure out a better way to get these mutants repowered. I don't think they're concerned with a better way. I think to some extent, one of the people that the X-Men have given full control of their legal fate is Apocalypse. And that motherfucker is like beat each other to death for my amusement. <laughs> we are talking about a guy who literally ritually gets off on trying to end the universe. I'm just like, one of the things that kept coming to my mind was I'm so glad that Nightcrawler is going to form the first mutant religion because he actually isn't forming the first mutant religion. Sorry, you're too late. Exodus did that back in 1994. And when he did it, it involved a lot more wholesale slaughter. So I really desperately am glad Exodus didn't start the first religion going, oh my God, look at Apocalypse kill so many people so quickly. It's like he just can't stop finding time to murder. Like I really was concerned. Two things. One, when does Apocalypse have the time between doing this and his other world magic research being, you know, sucking Jamie's dick for fun? Because I feel like he would enjoy it. That's number one. Number two, really, they named it The Crucible? That wasn't a good book. Why do we want a book? What do we want to name about Winona Ryder calling people witches and throwing rocks at them? No, no. They're trying to reclaim The Crucible, right? It's like, I'm going to write something about a scarlet letter, but instead, it's going to be a really mean note written in red, right? I think it's just, it's time to reclaim some titles from some people. Who misused them? But I don't like the Crucible. That's all I'm saying. Every issue so far, at the beginning of each issue, it has a title of the issue. And this issue was called Life Death. And when it comes to X-Men comics, there was a previous Life Death. And it was a storyline that dealt with Storm recovering after being depowered by Gyric and Forge's tech. And in that storyline from before, it started with the words, once upon a time, there was a woman who could fly. And I think it is amazing that they titled this issue that and that they focused around Melody and her regaining her flight. To add to that, and actually to tie right back into the leap year episode we just did in our most recent episode, there was a sequel to Life Death called Life Death 2. Life Death took place shortly after Rogue defected to the X-Men, leaving behind Mystique and Destiny, and Life Death 2 took place shortly before the X-Men sort of kind of faked their own death, kind of sort of. And the reason that's interesting, to me at least, is because Destiny and Mystique keep popping up in the annals of the X-History that it seems like Hickman is paying a lot of attention to, and that has me very happy, almost as happy as Logan and Scott just suck each other's dicks guys <laughs> oh my god do it they definitely whichever do. one of you is gonna unhinge first better get on it because <laughs> I am like just that Scott was the one who was like Scott in a bikini he wasn't like it wasn't Logan being like yeah and you're gonna see my hairy ass crack bub it was like Scott being like yeah you wanna see my optic beams like I was just like <laughs> damn this is what I want guys because one of the things is like I you know I'm as gay as they I mean like I'm so gay just, just dicks in everything but like I find myself very protective of Scott, Logan, and Jean's love. I've personally seen them as a trio for like most of my life. And it was one of the reasons that when my life reached a certain point where, you know, Kevo and I were excited to think about opening our family wider, Jonah fit our family perfectly. There was no question because I just sort of understood love can be a little bit more complicated than uh, binaural audio. So there's no version of Scott and Logan that doesn't involve Jean. And you can switch any of those names around however you want. And like, I, I just just felt so fulfilled like i felt a sense of personal emotional fulfillment and that's a hard thing to find tons of people believe that wolverine has been bisexual or is bisexual but never in like any part of comics has there been really any kind of indication that cyclops might be so i do like that so you're part. saying this is the first appearance of biclops <laughs> well listen yeah. yes Dawkins had to get it from somewhere <laughs> And, like, Cable's definitely bisexual with, like, everyone, right? Like, Cable is one of those people. Cable usually, Cable's so pan. Cable is so pan, it's coming at you from all sides. I can't help it. Like, and he got that from his daddy, 
right? And like, I bet Corsair's by too. I bet Corsair was like, hey, Chode, what's up, man? Okay. Raza, what you doing? No, that robot, no. that smaller you robot. explore space and not only, and only continue to fuck humans. That's no, 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 no. Well, I mean, obviously if, he's fucking Hepzibah. I mean, everybody's fucking I Hepzibah mean, if they're lucky. I they, mean, Hepzibah even is like the writers. space queen. They are probably the, how would I say that? They are probably <laughs> the best representation of swingers in comics that I've ever seen. <laughs> Ever. That's such an amazing point. I really love that. Yeah, so you know what? This is hereditary. Oh my god. And we can all just blame Christopher Summers, you know, that dashing pirate man. Guys, I'm desperate to write a... I need to write a Corsair solo series right the fuck now. Hickman, Jonathan Hickman, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, <clears throat> Dr. Head of X, sir, if I could just get my hands on a Corsair, giant-sized Corsair, I'll let you pick which part of him is giant-sized. <laughs> if you could just let me have this. The front or the back. I'll, or, anywhere, anywhere, one ass cheek, and the other's totally normal. No. I'm oh, just no. so excited no. about the future of X-Men right now. No. But you know what else is kind of scary? Uh, so Kyle, 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 Eep. my friend, oh my friend, when we were like, let's get at making these little image guys, you know, obviously Regina is like the good guy version of the Goblin Queen. It makes sense. And Dylan is like face group warrior, warpath guy. So like, it makes sense. Right. right? And Jonah's just so cute. He had to be Magneto and I'm obnoxious. So I picked Gene. But the thing that I can't help but notice is you were like, I like Doug. Doug's a nice guy. Let me be Doug. And now I'm scared of you. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. Apparently, well, that's what Doug said, and I didn't like it when he said it either. Apparently, neither does Cyclops, because either Cyclops did or didn't see Warlock in that one scene, and just decided not to talk about it at all. Yeah, it was kind of like... This is this is kind of like Alice in Wonderland, which is now it's Scott in Wonderland walking upon the tea party. But instead of actually stopping, he just go he just ignores it. You know, you have the three weirdos: you have Warlock and you have Krakoa and you have Doug, and they're all having a little key little kiki get together. You know, dishing the tea, goss, what's going on? And Scott does I'm gonna not let you have it. Talk about it at all. He does not mention it. He does not seem to blink twice if he could blink. Oh. I really love the fact that we got to see a, a little Guthrie family reunion because honestly, as the years went on and they kept introducing the different Guthries and different eras or generations or classes, like they never had the four of them be in the same room together. So it was awesome to see the four of them. Well, I mean, it's so difficult to get them all together with shooting schedules. And I know one of them always has some modeling gigs. It must be really difficult to get all of them in the same room. That's like a joke, right? <laughs> None of them are a model. Yes, they're not real people. <laughs> well, well, it, it... <laughs> It felt like you were comparing the Guthries to the Kardashians, and I was really confused. <laughs> that was the joke I was making. So they're the mutant Kardashians. Every time you close your eyes, there's another one, and they're on a bottle of water, and they're trying to get you to go to Ulta. Melody Guthrie is just standing outside Ulta, begging you to come inside. Well, she's flying now. <laughs> Melody Guthrie is just flying outside of Ulta, begging you to come inside. Okay, so going back to Doug for a minute, when you see him sitting with Warlock and Cyclops blinks and Warlock disappears. I just want to say, I, I really love Warlock, but in this panel, he has this giant creepy grin and I just cannot get past that. It's straight up Magus. It is like straight up his father, the Magus. It is creepy as fuck. We finally get a little bit of detail on that weird building in the middle of Krakoa that we thought looked very similar to the building that looked like uh, Nimrod's in Hoxbox. True, right. And um, yeah, I need to know more about it now because apparently there's no windows and no doors and there's no way in or out other than to teleport into it. And which offers you this chilling challenge whoa <laughs> so yeah i'm wondering what they're gonna do with this building i want all the answers and then they start talking about the wills and how different mutants are requesting they're already requesting to have additional powers added when they come back and there was a oh. lot to unpack in this book. yeah <laughs> So, 
So the next book we're going to look at is Giant Size X-Men number one, Jean Grey and Emma Frost, titled Into the Storm. The writer was Jonathan Hickman on story and words, Russell Dodderman in story and art, Matthew Wilson as the color artist, and VCs Clayton Cowles as the letterer. And they did note special thanks to Grant Morrison and Frank Quitely. I believe from day one, I was very clear that I, yeah, you know what? I think I've made the joke and all things considered with this episode, it's an appropriate joke to crucify myself with. I believe I have referred to my new X-Men omnibus as a religious text on more than one occasion. So page, yeah, page after page of this, I kept being like enveloped because I'm not the biggest quietly fan. I have to be like, I understand that Frank quietly is like the greatest storyteller of his generation, but it always looks like Clayface made of pudding melting in a rainstorm and so I sometimes have trouble looking at Frank Quietly art and Russell Dowderman draws every woman like a goddess here to touch your face like it's unbelievable and this issue was it was like the best version of the best issue drawn really pretty and it even ended with the line we ought to talk and I died so I also died and I resurrected because Jean was there and she was like Jonah now and I was like, Jonah, no. All right. We need you, Jonah. As Nico has mentioned, he has uh, indoctrined me with these religious texts of New X-Men. So it's one of my favorite runs. I literally thought you were going to say that he's indoctrined you into the Jean Grey cult. <laughs> no. <laughs> nope. I'm sorry, but he hasn't been attacked for liking Jean publicly by a group of Emma fans pelting diamonds at him. He can't be in yet. <laughs> That never actually happened to me, but can you imagine if I was at a con in a jean costume and Emma fans just started throwing diamonds at me? The joke's on them. I'd sell the diamonds. I'm going to do that to you. When life gives you diamonds, you sell them. I really enjoyed this issue because it was a much more refreshing take on two women working together to save another woman. As opposed to two women trying to one-up each other to save a whiny man. Granted, I shouldn't be attacking Charles. A whiny man who has uncomfortable... No, he's uncomfortably sexualized them both. Like, I understand that you're saying, no, 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 Cassandra Nova, body, coma, whatever. No, he's actually done horrible things to Gene and Emma both. So the fact that they're competing to protect him in that issue, it is something that is made much better by Hickman's adjustment to the story here. Also, the art, the art was just like, just like Doubterman gasms for pages and paid Doubtergasms? Doubterman, Russell gas? I don't, I don't, what's the proper term? Please don't take any offense to this, Mr. Quietly, but I described your gene as um, Xavier in a red wig <laughs> multiple times because that's what it looks Actually, like. Actually, that is, I'm pretty sure that was the model he used. He just got Xavier to pose as Gene in a red wig because Gene was dead at the time. Okay, but real talk real fast. It is a known fact that if you put a wig on, it is one of the most fun things to do to just pose around and act a fool. I'm just saying, try putting a wig on for once if you need to relax. I think drag culture has proven putting on a wig gives you superpowers. Yes, it does. When I when it was revealed that the story was Emma and Jean going to save Storm, I really didn't have an idea of what exactly that meant because it's so vague that it can be anything. I will say I don't know how to feel about the Children of the Vault virus only because we haven't seen much else of what the Children of the Vault are up to. And I think I would have preferred an update on, hey, we sent three people into the vault. What happened? I, I kind of maybe would have thought that would have helped me bridge Storm contracting a virus that will kill her in 30 days. Well, I think that's actually going to be the plot of the giant sizes is now. Now I think that they're all going to be interconnected, especially if it ends on Storm. I wonder if we're going to see through Nightcrawler, Magneto, and Phantom X kind of how we got here because they had no problem switching Magneto and Nightcrawler's giant sizes is, is because Alan Davis finished early. What the fuck? Alan Davis finished early? Anyway, that's just, I can't even imagine. A, can you imagine a penciler being like, sorry guys, I'm done early. I can't, 
<laughs> anyway, um, I find myself baffled how they could just so effortlessly switch the order of them. I have to wonder if they're going to show us how we got here. I'm hoping that they do because I feel like this issue is ahead of where all the other books are in time. Because not only has uh, Jean changed her outfit, but as of right now, Storm is still with the Marauders. So how is she on the island and suddenly under attack by the uh, Children of the Vault? Ooh. I want to say this issue was amazing um, for the same reasons that everyone else has said. Russell's art is just beautiful. I will say, though, and I hope I understand if people want to attack me. I, I love Russell's art. I read a ton of Jane Thor because of it, and I'm not even a huge Thor fan. Russell also did some of the art on the 05 Teenage Cyclops solo book. I love his art. But I want to say there's one little critique that I have. I do feel like sometimes, not all the time, when it comes to some of his women's art, I know this is probably me nitpicking something that doesn't need to be nitpicked, but thigh gaps on women makes it seem like they are super, super, super skinny. And I feel like we don't need to see thigh gaps on characters like Storm or Jean, mainly just because I feel like that kind of gives a wrong thought process for what women's bodies should look like. And and like as a gay man, he should know better. Exactly. That being said, Russell is, I feel like, the best Storm artist that we've seen in decades because he really does know how to showcase what an African-American woman's face should look like. And I am just very happy for what he does for Storm art. So first, I have to agree with everyone else. I love the art in this book. It was it was mesmerizing. The I mean, I just spent I don't know how long just looking at the pages and looking at the way the lines flowed together. The verbiage was very limited. You know, we the most words we see are at the beginning and at the end. In the middle, there's almost no words. When you can tell a story with just the art, that's amazing. It's just an amazing feat. In the very beginning, when they're going to find Storm, Jean and Emma are walking into this opening and in Krakoan it says I translated it in case you guys didn't <laughs> it says silence psychics rescue and progress and then they go in and they are look they find Storm's body and then they enter her mind and they they see this beautiful tree it kind of looks like a Wakandan tree and it's got the emblem of her headdress above it and then they kind of go on this journey where they are trying to find her and Jean shows Storm who they were to each other in relation to each other she makes like this little these two figures out of dust of Storm and Jean Grey embracing and then <laughs> Emma shows Storm the two of them fighting <laughs> it turns into a giant snake and like attacks Emma <laughs> I absolutely love that because Emma's like, um, I think the only time Storm and I ever really did anything together was when we fought. <laughs> Excuse and me, I swap. don't know how- Why aren't we talking about the flying elephant, which meant everything to me? So pretty. Oh, that was coming next. <laughs> oh, good. Because, like, I'm obsessed with flying elephants. Like, it's a thing. I, I'm, like, super obsessed with Dumbo and Jean Grey summoned a flying <laughs> elephant and it was everything. <laughs> And just it, the whole thing was just the inks were beautiful. The the art was beautiful. Oh, the whole thing was just amazing. The note you made about translating the Krakoan is so vital because that's another reference to New X-Men 121, the Nuff Said issue. Psychic Rescue and Progress really is like a line from the original book. Like I that issue changed my life. And my favorite writer on X-Men since probably Chris Claremont is referencing my like my all-time most important text ever. It's unbelievable to me how fulfilled I felt by Hickman's contributions to X-Men this week. I could gush forever about the number of splash pages, because that's one of the things I love the most about Hickman. He says the art is just as important. Regina, you know, saying that he was able to tell the story through visuals is so important because he let Dowderman tell the story. He didn't overflow it with words as the writer, and those splash pages are life-changing. Everyone, my 
my name's Ross, and I'm a member of the House of X and Comic Watch, and my favourite Dawn of X title is X-Force. My favourite moment has been between Domino and Colossus. Percy has very carefully explored the effects of trauma and how different characters deal with that trauma in a really effective way, and it's just been an exceptional title from the word go. The last book we're going to cover this week is uh, X-Men Fantastic Four number two, Broken Borders. Chip Zardsky is the writer. Terry Dodson was the penciler. And Rachel Dodson with Carl Story and Ransom Getty were the inkers. Laura Martin was the color artist. And VC's Joe Caramagna was the letterer. I was pretty bored. Like, you know, I feel and I feel bad because I think the Dodsons are some of the most talented artists in all of comics. But I felt like this was a rehash of the uncanny run that came before it that he did art on. The Gillen run, like that quarantine era where Emma looked amazing. I... I love Chip Zardsky. Uh, Sex Criminals is one of the greatest things I've ever read. Daredevil by Zardsky is a return to form, but I don't know if it's that my favorite Richards is Valeria and she's getting treated like shit in this. So I'm like getting kind of like hyper titchy about it. So I think, unfortunately, that is something we may need to get used to anytime the X-Men interact with the human world where these amazing characters are suddenly treated less than the X-Men. And I'm not happy with that. Um, I mean, I've I've already said in previous episodes that I'm not really a big fan of how the mutants are now claiming that they are the superior group, that they see themselves as gods now. And it makes it really makes this issue that much more apparent that this is causing problems with groups that it normally wouldn't. You know, Regina, you're the one of us who has the joy of claiming to be a mom, and none of us have the the ability to claim children. So... (laughs) I feel like you have a unique perspective on this by virtue of your experiences. And I'm hoping maybe you can make me like anyone in this more because you make me like people being ripped in half more. So maybe you can make me like people acting like half a person. Okay, I'll give it a shot because this really wasn't my book either, to be honest. But I do, probably because I am a mom, Sue does resonate with me a lot more than any other character from the Fantastic Four. She's always kind of resonated with me more, probably just because of her personality. But I totally get where she's coming from in this book. Now, to add another layer, my children are biracial. So they do have ties to two separate communities. So when she kind of says, you know, this nation thinks that they're better than everyone. They've got, you know, diplomatic immunity for Sabretooth and Apocalypse is on the Quiet Council. They're not the heroes that we used to know. I've got to get my kid back. I totally get where she's coming from. But the rest of the book didn't really do it for me. I do like the fact that they highlighted that she is probably their most important warrior. So when they do go to Krakoa to see if they can find their son, she's the one that is the key to them getting in and and doing what they need to do. The kids being with Doom is unsettling. And then we see the Doom bots at the end and you just know things are about to get very bad. There's kind of no time that Doom enters the picture is a good thing. And he's already been in this so much. I'm like, guys, guys, guys. I know she's my favorite. But if Valeria is excited about the plan, it's a bad plan. It probably involves Uncle Victor. Uncle Vic is bad. Uncle Vic is the freaky guy with the... No, he's the freaky guy with the big white van. Only his big white van is a mask. My thoughts on this issue is basically the same as everyone else's. Um, I kind of feel like the story is a little bit lacking. Uh, The art is actually probably what I like the most, but there's even some parts of the art. This issue I feel like was better. Uh, The first issue I feel like the art was, I don't know, rushed or something. It just did not look like the Dotson art that I'm used to. But this issue had a lot of great art and splash pages and... Yeah, that's really about the most that I can say. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, I feel bad. Like I feel like we're sounding like we have half opinions on it, but it kind of only felt like, honestly, like half of an issue. I know Zardsky is capable of so much stronger. Maybe if these first two issues had been edited down to a stronger 30 pages instead of this 54, I would like it better. But there's so much buildup that hasn't paid off yet. And like, I know we're only two out of four issues in, but guys, we're more than halfway through. The first issue was extra sized. This was the second issue. We have less time to go than we've had to tie all this up and I don't feel like I'm even at the plot yet okay so I feel like the whole problem with this with this issue is that nobody is willing to calm their emotions enough to talk things through and the people who are calm enough to talk it through they're already in the wrong because of what they have done in the previous issue um i'm looking specifically at reed i just feel like everybody fighting because they don't they won't listen is something that we keep seeing over and over and over again and it's a little frustrating in fighting is not my x-men on the one hand viewing sue storm as a mother and a parent I completely understand her stances. Her kids are everything to her. And I, while I'm not a parent, I do understand wanting to do everything for your child to make sure that they are saved and loved. That I understand. Viewing Sue from the, view, the lens of a superhero has royally made me angry. I understand that Sue is angry right now. But Sue, you have not done anything for your son as a mutant. Where was Sue when the Sentinels were attacking and hunting mutants, killing them for being born? Where was Sue when government programs were killing mutants and wanting them all dead, spewing hate propaganda against them for being born? When Sue Storm came back with powers, she wasn't revealed as a freak. She was deemed a hero. So for her to sit on her high horse and pretend that mutants don't have struggles to go through is really annoying. And the lack of empathy I'm seeing from both her and Reed regarding their son's identity as a mutant really does hurt me. Because when someone of privilege tries to make someone of a minority class feel bad because they are a minority class, you're kind of a shitster in my book. I understand that's not the intent of what they're trying to do with Sue, but that's how I'm interpreting it. And I don't want to hate Sue Storm because I think having her be one of the most powerful members within the Marvel Universe, I think that's super fucking cool. But you haven't done anything. You haven't done anything for mutant and mutant cotton, especially when after your son was born. So you don't get to sit here and be angry about things. That That's, that's not it's okay. It's really interesting that you bring that up because Hickman introduced that in House of X number one in sort of a way that I feel like has never really been overtly discussed. It does seem like every couple of months there is a exterminate all mutants plan coming out of the government and half the time the Fantastic Four and the Avengers are not just on the government payroll, but it's Tony and Reed's technology that's helping build these machines. And there's never any responsibility taken by the heroes of the Marvel Universe for letting an entire minority class be hunted to near extinction. Art, in very, very layman's terms, is a piece of media that invokes an emotion. Whatever that emotion is, it doesn't matter. It's just meant to invoke an emotion. You're allowed to feel it whatever way you want about all the books that we read today. You may love them, you may hate them, that's okay. I would just encourage to keep discussions respectful and keep an open mind and an open ear of another person's perspective. Kyle, what can we expect next week? So coming out next week, we have Excalibur number eight and Marauders number nine. For trades, we have Marvel Comics 1000 hardcover and the Uncanny X-Force Remender omnibus. And then we also have two posters, the Cable number one cover and the X-Men number nine cover. Until next time when we are going to cover the rest of this week's books, New Mutants number 8 and X-Force number 8, you can find me on both Twitter and Instagram at Drantis82. Dylan, where can everybody find you? Everybody can find me on Facebook at my X-Men Facebook group that Regina helps me moderate that is called House of X. Or you can find me on Instagram at Warpath underscore Dylan. That is Warpath underscore D-Y-L-A-N. Regina, where can everyone find you? 
You can find me on Twitter at the Red Queen underscore G, on Instagram at the Red Queen underscore on underscore IG, and on Facebook at House of Goblin Queen. Jonah, where can everybody find you? If you'd like to find me and reach out to me, fighting apocalypse and a crucible death to the arena and calling other people witches when I'm just a young girl and at, during this time, young girls weren't believed. <laughs> really long joke that if you didn't read the crucible, it doesn't make sense. I'm going for obscureness right now. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram. At Are you sure Jonah. you don't yield? You sure you don't yield? No, I do. Do I? That's what that's what apocalypse is saying. Do you, oh. do, do you yield? <laughs> uh, I yeet. It was a throwback! <laughs> <laughs> I yeet. That's that's what I would say. Fine. You know where I am. I didn't ask you yet. Hold on. <laughs> I. You know where I am. I'm here. <laughs> yes, you are. If Apocalypse said, "Do I yield?" I would say, "I yeet," and then he would kill me. It would be great. Nico, where can everybody find you? <laughs> Yikes. You guys can find me all over this amazing network on shows like HTML, which I do with a bunch of the lovelies here, most notably with Kevo, my husband, Jonah's boyfriend, where we talk about different multimedia franchises. Right now, focused a keen eye on space with Star Wars. Don't forget to check out the amazing archives on this show, where you can find us talking about the House of X once it began, as well as Uncanny X-Men, back when Chris Claremont rebooted the whole thing in 1975. Don't forget to look us up on our internet portals. We are Krakoa and X is for podcast com as well as my online comic Kid Riot at KidRiotComics.com and you can check me out on Instagram at NicoAction that's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N and until we come back guys we'll see ya. See ya. Bye. Bye. Goodbye. <laughs>